as you walk in, you feel kind of suffocated and overwhelmed. That is kind of like the feeling of an insecurity. to the 30th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist I'm going to interview. You know, I really want to say Happy New Year, print friends. I really want to, but unfortunately, we're only eight days into 2020 and things already don't feel so happy. Without even getting into everything else that's going on, I'm sure I don't have to tell anyone about the unprecedented and devastating fires burning through Australia. For those of you who don't know, Australia is where I live and where PCL is made. Not to make things sound more dramatic than they are, but I have had a bag packed and ready to evacuate for the last week, just waiting by the door, just in case. It has cash, a phone charger, a battery-powered radio, and of course, the backup hard drive with all the yet-to-be-released interviews for Pine Copper Lime, because damn it, I ain't losing those. These fires have destroyed homes, rainforests, they've killed at least six people, and almost half a billion animals have been lost. Bushfire season still has another three months to go. So, I want to tell you about a fundraiser I'm hosting for WIRES. That's an acronym for an Australian Wildlife Rescue Organization. So, please follow the link in the show notes. That link will also be on the PCL website, on Facebook, or on Instagram. There you can make a donation, and with a contribution of just $10 or more, I will send you a hand-pulled screen print postcard. There are three options to choose from, each generously donated by local artists Claire Jackson, Alex Lundy, and Tim Pauschak. They are stunning and slightly macabre and a gosh darn steal at 10 bucks. And that's 10 bucks Australian. So anyone who's thinking of the US dollar, take off about 30% from that. It's set up through GoFundMe, which means 100% of your donations go directly to wires, directly to help fluffy little koalas and spiky little echidnids and hoppy little kangaroos and my personal favorite, the noble and solid wombat. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers, join that activism party. And speaking of activism, I cannot wait to share my chat with my guest this week, Stephanie Alanese. She's an intersectional feminist, fat activist, and adjunct professor at Emporia State University. We talk about it all, growing up in a very conservative family, how we deal and process our physical insecurities through art making and collaboration, 
immersive print exhibitions, fatness, lithography, and of course, the wonderful found family one can build through printmaking. So sit back, relax, and prepare to get radical with Stephanie Alanis. Hey Steph, how's it going? Hi Miranda, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm so glad we're finally getting a chance to chat face to face. Me so too. To speak. I was going to say so to speak because we, um, I've known you just sort of through Instagram and I'd followed your work for a while before that and I'm just really excited to share what you're doing and your story with people but I would love it if you could give yourself a little introduction and just let people know who you are, where you are and what you do. Okay. I'm Stephanie Alanese, and I'm currently working and living in Emporia, Kansas as an adjunct professor. I am a queer fat activist. So I'm making work where I've called upon other folks to participate that involves insecurities and trying to normalize and create solidarity and understanding of those insecurities. I focused um, first on myself, and so I have a lot of work that's just of my face. And really, these we're not—I'm not even leaping into like insecurities that are more abstract or emotional. Really, just physical and mm-hmm. trying to like identify like where they come from, like what their roots are. So when I did myself, it felt like it was healing for me, but it still felt too far for other people. And I am a person who's motivated by empathy and trying to understand people and trying to like be considerate of everyone. Uh, I was nervous about including people in the beginning because I didn't want to be taking advantage of anyone. I wanted to make sure this was something that was helpful and not harmful. So I focused on myself because I knew that I wouldn't be doing that to myself. And through a lot of encouragement from really kind and supportive people, they were like, you should just include other people because other people want to be included. And so I put the call out on Instagram and at first it was a lot of friends, but now I have a lot of strangers, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. And I I think in total I'm at 90 participants for this portrait project and I've only done 36, but I'm about, and I took a break after grad school because I transitioned from West Virginia to Emporia, Kansas. So, and then I was teaching three classes, which was something I wasn't doing before. (laughs) (laughs) So I was only teaching one class. And then of course being a student, which was, and I'm a person who has to be working constantly. So Mm -hmm. um, I haven't really got to make work because I'm trying to find the balance. Yeah. The new, the new balance in um, being a professor and an artist. Mm-hmm. But now I'm starting to make work again, which is great. But this this winter break, I'm going to get to go back into working on the portraits again, which I'm very excited about. And then when they're experienced collectively, like we can start to see repetitious patterns mm-hmm. of like people not liking their second chin or like bags mm-hmm. under their eyes or wrinkles, which has to do with ageism and fat phobia mm-hmm. and Eurocentric ideologies and, you know, any of those norms. And so as individuals, we can look at those things, whether we were a participant or not, and decide if we were, if we believe that to be a bad thing about ourselves, or if that was something we were conditioned to believe through societies. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think it's good since we're talking about kind of like 
conditioning and the messages we get, you know, when our brains are still squishy when we're young and like how we carry those with us. Yes. Would you tell us a little bit about your own growing up? Like where, where were you? What role did art play in your life? Were you always drawing? Were you taken to museums? What was that like? So I grew up to a very low income young family mm. and they were so like still into partying and a lot of my like childhood memories have to do with them drinking and doing drugs and partying. And of course, like as a child, I didn't know any better or think yeah. anything of it, but they were surprisingly supportive and always were like, wow, you draw so good, which probably wasn't true, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> And they were just being really supportive. And I was like, yeah, I do draw good. And <laughs> so then I kept doing it. And um, on, I think I'm maybe the only person uh, in the like world who has the little um, sheets they make you fill out as a child that say, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And mine all say either artist or art teacher. Cute. And I've never known any other thing I would want to be doing. Mm. Which is so strange. My and my partner, he he wants to be everything and like really is jealous of my ability to <laughs> only have ever wanted this one thing and like that was my goal and tunnel vision, you know, mm -hmm. like someone read my palm before and told me it says like I have one path, which is kind ah, of crazy. That sounds that sounds appropriate then. So you you just knew from the beginning that you were you were going to go to art school and this was it for you then, hey? Yeah, when I well um so oh, I'm from I forgot to say where I'm from Rockport, Texas, which is actually outside of Corpus Christi. So that's South Texas on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. And I didn't know I knew I was going to go to college because I didn't know what else I would do, but I also knew mm -hmm. I wanted to make art. And I was a really bad undergrad in the beginning <laughs> because I didn't like I don't know I think I was burnt out and and then when I was in undergrad I signed up for printmaking and of course I had no idea what that meant yeah, because yeah. I'm from a tiny town called Rockport which only has like 7,000 people in it and our art our art teachers when I left were really great and but I had never heard of printmaking mm. So when I went to the community college, I took a printmaking class, which I think is like a down, it was like a down and dirty crash course of doing all of the like mm -hmm. main types. So we did a woodcut first and then a lino cut and then an intaglio. And then the last two weeks we had uh, to do a, li a stone litho. <laughs> Just two weeks, and eh? Yeah. <laughs> it was the worst thing I've ever made. It's so ugly. <laughs> and it's because I don't know. Oh, well, I guess I'm speeding up to the punchline of my next story, which is, so I switched to Texas A&M Corpus Christi and my second semester, I signed up for printmaking and I had heard it was kind of a mod podge of all processes, but it was, so I was very excited because I hadn't done screen print and I was ready to learn screen print. And then when we got there, Ryan O'Malley said, all right. Uh, this is a litho-specific class. We're only doing stone lithography. <laughs> and I was so mad because I had already did it. I was yeah. like, I already, I already did that. I don't want to do it again. I want to do yeah. screenwriting. And then, I don't know if I wasn't paying attention when I learned it in the community college, but Ryan sharpened the crayon. <laughs> and I was like, everything is different now. <laughs> because 
the first litho I did, I didn't, I don't know why I didn't piece together. My little baby brain couldn't like piece together that I could sharpen this pencil like tool. <laughs> um, so I just drew to like a rounded nub and like <laughs> the drawing is so bad. And then I fell in love with stone litho. That was it. Uh, that was it. Because mm-hmm. I love, I always love drawing. I've always been drawing. But, like, drawing started to get, like, boring because it wasn't challenging me enough. Ah. And so litho was the challenge that I wanted. Um, It, like, breaks up the stagnantness of drawing that I was experiencing. Not that Mm -hmm. drawing doesn't have, like, many facets. But I had a limited idea of what drawing was. And um, so learning stone litho and having to problem solve and trying to understand, like, the chemicals that were place and like how to etch a stone properly and all of that was so fascinating and exciting to me and I lost a lot of prints and I've cried <laughs> I cried a lot I think the first time I lost a like it didn't print right I cried and the second time I cried a little and then the third time I was numb <laughs> so um so but because I'm a fire sign <laughs> I have to win so I was like, I'm going to learn how to do litho. It's not going to defeat me. And, um, and of course I love drawing. So it's the perfect medium for that. I think that litho studios, instead of having a swear jar, should have like a cried (laughs) jar. Like that people like just can like put a coin in that's like, yep. Cried today, like, cause that's, she's a harsh mistress, litho. She Um, is, but I love her. She's so... (laughs) She doesn't let me get away with anything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There's people who pay good money for that. So there's a, yeah, because I think that one thing that really is immediately striking about your work is that you are an incredible draftsperson. You are someone who draws quite, quite well. So your skills in drawing, I feel like, are directly connected to your ability to do your ongoing series which is called insecurity portraits because you can make a f- the, the the facsimile the, the drawing of someone so accurately that they're very recognizable and also alter it to the ends of the project and you're using this the, the skills that you have I think really specifically and really well in this series but before we kind of dive in to some of the philosophies and implications and all of that and that that interesting juicy bit could you just speak directly to what happens within the the series okay so i have i put a call a call out asking for participants and um i give them a pdf and in this pdf it explains that you should send me a photograph that's either frontal or three quarters view of your face and then try really hard not to idealize your face so camera above your head or like Mm -hmm. doing uh duck lips or whatever you want to call them yeah so trying really hard to have a neutral expression and then giving me that photograph and then along with that photograph um you should include a list that you associate with your physical insecurities and a list you associate with your physical positives Mm -hmm. and so then from from that information I render all of the insecurities in tonal black and then all of the positives and tonal color. And then there are some aesthetic choices, like um, if the hair is just solid black, that's to help 
the total information yeah. read better. Um, so accessories are the same way, like glasses or jewelry, things like that. And then, so anywhere that's not rendered is, is indifference. So when they're all placed together, then we can see that, like, we can visually experience those repeating things throughout. And we can notice, like, uh, and the other part of that is, like, some people's lists are really, like, how everyone gives me this information is very unique and different. Some people mm-hmm. give me literal, like, lists where they bullet point every single thing and others, like, explain each thing and what like really reflect and they write that to me which feels really intimate and special yeah yeah. and I feel so touched by all the different ways and so I thought that was really important and so I wanted to include the words so I screen printed these 15 inch by 25 foot rolls of paper which then get installed collectively uh, to create a space and so the Mm -hmm. inside is like different variations of black um which is the insecurity and then the outside is screen printed the positives and in cm and Mm y and then the top is the least dense and then as it gets to the bottom it's the most dense and the most illegible so each person has their own portrait and each person also has their own roll of paper Mm -hmm. um so that will be i'm actually installing that this january at the exhibition called 528.0 Regional Juried Printmaking Exhibition, which will be located at the Arvada Center in Arvada, Colorado. And the dates are January 16th through March 29th. Excellent. Well, I will definitely put a link to all of that in the show notes for sure. So because I was in grad school when I was creating the portraits, uh, the insecurity portraits, I was asked why these weren't photographs, um, why are they drawings, and the reason is because I like to, like I mentioned earlier, I like to experience empathy and connections to others and like kind of feel and experience their own struggles or things that are good, you know, all of those, mm-hmm. all of the things. Yeah. And so I really like podcasts like The Moth and any kind of storytelling that's really deep and heavy hitting because I think it's beautiful to go through something and struggle with it and then come out of it having like persevered. I think Mm -hmm. it's super, Mm -hmm. it makes me really emotional. And I love that someone else's story can affect me in that way and it makes me feel more Mm -hmm. connected to people. So. This process of drawing takes me a really long time because I use lots of, I actually draw like a printmaker now. So so I layer each colored pencil color with like the same way we would do like layers of prints where I would do my lightest colors first and then I work my way to the darkest. So doing that is really time consuming and laborious. And I actually love work. I love to make work that is time consuming and laborious because it feels really important and I feel like I spent enough time with it and I got to know it. And because it's people too, I feel stressed out while I'm drawing because I don't, I don't, or like anxious because I don't want to perpetuate anyone's insecurities. Instead, I want to offer them a moment of reflection to feel like they get a chance to decide instead of like what society taught them to hate about themselves, they can have a chance to be like, no, I actually don't hate that about myself. I actually, you know, I realize now that that was my internalized misogyny or like, Mm -hmm. 
things like that. And so when I'm sitting and drawing, I like to feel those emotions because it feels like I'm feeling what they feel when they obsess and dwell and worry and are concerned. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, yeah. I could totally see that. With that fine precision of rendering that you're doing, you have to spend so much time looking at what they look at. And I feel like with so many insecurities that we have, it's the kind of thing that once we flush them out, once we put them out in the open, people, the people who truly know us, they're, they're always like, you noticed that even about yourself or, mm-hmm. or I don't see that when I see you, mm-hmm. I just see you, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and to get into the headspace of that kind of repeating loop that people can, can be at when it comes to their physical appearance in this particular case, although as we, we talked about earlier, insecurities can take many forms, but in, in this case, just physical and facial insecurities. Do you ever find that to be a little bit hard emotionally, that you're kind of getting into that, mm-hmm. a bit of that darkness by spending all that time with the portrait? I don't think so. I, I, I mean, because I, I think it's because I love to feel emotional. <laughs> I think that being emotional is super special. And so like all the all of the music I love and all the like most of the podcasts I listen to and even the television I'm watching is like very motivated by like feeling emotional or sad or like sad, happy, <laughs> you know. So I just really love that. I think it's really special. But I also like challenging my own perspective too. And in the beginning, I was finding like, I can't believe I was, I thought things like, I'm so surprised that that's something they don't like. And then I, I was remembering that I can't invalidate anyone's own like experiences. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then creating the work, of course, challenged my own, like internalized everything. And it mm-hmm. opened up conversations. And even though like I've li- made limitations to it being like physical, Um, I'm hoping that that can be translated into someone's reflection on their own internal or like emotional or things that don't exist in the physical world that they feel insecure about. It has, I mean, it has for me for sure. Um, especially with, with experiences outside of, you know, myself, like, so I, as I will never experience, I will never know what it's like to be a person of color or a woman of color, you know, and the struggles they go through, but for a moment I can like try to be understanding and then also advocate for them if mm-hmm. any ways that I can, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think so many of insecurities that people have, it is when you deconstruct it, when you take it out of the darkness and the obsession and, and put it out in the daylight, it's, you know, as you said, mm-hmm. it comes from misogyny, it comes from fat phobia, it comes from a colonial perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I think that while, you know, everyone has their insecurities, as you say, the more of those isms affect you directly and your lived experience, the almost like the, the, the deeper well of insecurity that society has, has given you to draw from. It's just really such an interesting project because it really is bringing into light this idea that we're taught to hate ourselves for a variety of reasons, not the least of which 
is that it keeps us with low self-worth. So we don't think we deserve better in the world. If there's something wrong with us, we can pay money to fix it. So capitalism loves that. Yes. You yes. Know? yes she like, does. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's a hungry bitch. Um, <laughs> uh, like, you know, like feed, you gotta feed the machine. Um, I guess it, it's, it makes it such an interesting project in that way too, that, I think that a lot of times when we talk about insecurities, it seems so personal and it's like, mm-hmm. well, this is on me, right? Like I've, I, I, I feel terrible about this about myself and we can get thinking about it in a bubble. But of course, through this deeply personal experience, you've actually created a portal into so many different larger systems that affect the quality of people's lives, which is part of the reason why I, I love that project. And the other, I, the other thing I wanted to mention is like with the insecurity collective sculpture, it's meant to f- like, when you experience it, you walk in and it's kind of a smallish space and there's like wadded, like the ends are kind of crumpled and piled around the floor. So you, cause they're 25 feet long. So as you walk in, you feel like, kind of suffocated and overwhelmed mm-hmm. and it's not that I want to make anyone feel bad but that is kind of like the feeling of being stressed out or anxious about an insecurity mm-hmm. um as in my own experiences and this is why I still like draw myself a lot and so a lot of the lithos I'm doing are still like of my face is because I'm trying to deal with my own like fluctuating and internal fat phobia internal mm-hmm. misogyny because like I am fat, but I also like have facial hair and mm-hmm. I like try to remove it as often as I can. And that's exhausting, but it's also like a natural part of me that happens. And so yeah. trying to like feel comfortable with that and stop and acne too. I have acne all the time and there are days where I can't even like look at people cause I'm like, all they see is my acne or all mm-hmm. they see is my facial hair. And when I first started teaching, I had this really bad insecurity that my students at the end of the semester would say something like, she needs to shave her legs. Her, um, oh, yeah, really? and no one, and no one ever did. No. And yeah. I don't, I don't know if anyone ever would, but it is like a thing that sometimes pops up in my head uh-huh. where I'm worried that people will comment on my, like outside of the beauty norms appearance mm-hmm. my unconventional appearance that's really interesting I guess because it's really vulnerable space to be in where you're pushing back against beauty standards against expectations and still feeling vulnerable in that moment when it's such a strong action you know as ridiculous as it is in America in 2019 to not shave your legs as Mm -hmm. a woman is shocking to Mm -hmm. some people. (laughs) And even though this is naturally what our body looks like, our body makes hair on our legs. Like it just, it does. It's trying to, trying to keep us warm, you know? Exactly. How am I going to stay warm? How am I going to, how are you going to stay warm? It is cold in Kansas. Like, and so I think, Sometimes when people see, particularly women, you know, who have not shaved their legs or 
not plucked their dark hairs on their upper lip or whatever it is, you know, particularly when it comes to hair removal, they'll see it as, wow, she's she's so she's so strong and and brave yes but it's also i think really beautiful that you can also admit and talk about how i'm making this statement at the same time as it would hurt me if Mm -hmm. someone was to say something about it yeah because it feels like someone else made that choice for me like Mm -hmm. i was told i should feel bad that i have facial hair and that i have acne and that i have hairy legs because like I was born a woman and I look like a woman and you know Mm -hmm. and that's so frustrating to me so I guess in a way that a lot of women have done I've like reclaimed my body and tried to be like okay this thing is something I worry about but I don't want to worry about it so let's normalize it by instead of worrying if people are seeing it just draw it and put it out there and be like look at it you look at it and now you know it's there and now I know you know it's there instead of worrying if do you know it's there? It's interesting. For some reason, it reminded me that it's, it's kind of within the context of the way we're perceived, which is that I submitted my own face to the insecurity portraits. Yes, yes, you did. And what I talked about was the fact that I have physical differences in both sides of my face from an illness that I had several years ago. That a lot of the way that it comes out is in the way it moves. Like it's not super noticeable in photographs, but I can't close my left eye without the left side of my mouth pulling. My left eye is is can get squinty and small if I'm having kind of like a bad day where the muscles are really tight and this sort of thing. And mm-hmm. it's completely, you know, I don't even know how many years it's been now since I've had it, like I'll, coming up on a decade maybe since my face changed. And you know, it affects so much about the way I style myself, the side I want to be photographed on, all of that kind of thing. And the people who I've maybe I've even known them for for years or months, and it's just like, oh yeah, like I have this thing. The people who say they've noticed it are women and queer men. Straight men mm. will almost always be like, I've never noticed that about your face. Mm-hmm. And I find that really interesting and I'm wondering if it has something to do with almost being more aware of the male gaze and judging aesthetically Mm -hmm. through a male gaze than those with it yes you know that it's that these are people who are used to looking at themselves and therefore looking at other people Mm -hmm. in a way that's like would a man want to fuck this like (laughs) right yes yes absolutely and so my my project is inclusive of all people, regardless of their many intersecting identities. So I do have straight men and even more specifically straight white men. And, and I mean, I would say straight men in general, the ones who I've had, the amount of information they give me is usually pr- like really low or it could be based on something they felt as a kid and not as much now. And that's the other thing that I think is important is you can notice straight men compared to people who've been raised to perform as women. They usually have a lot less. And I think it's important that they're included because that's an important thing to notice. I've also had some straight men who've told me that they really like the project, but they could never do it because it's too vulnerable for them. Oh, And that always makes yeah. me think of this Hidden Brain episode called The Lonely American Man. Uh, where they talk about men usually not being able to make friends as they get older because that requires vulnerability and intimacy. Mm -hmm. 
that they're taught to not have. And I think that's a big part of it too. You know, like they don't want to share this information. This is private information. So it's got to be tucked away in a vault. Yeah. I'd like to shift gears just a little bit too about your work and how we're talking about these insecurity portraits that, you know, it has to do with the way we feel about ourselves and the way that affects the way we show up in the world. But there's also, I think, a big part of your work that has to do with the way we're received in the world as well. Yes. And that has to do with that more side of the your practice that encompasses the fat activism, intersectional feminism, that kind of work as well. And as we we talked about before, you said you identify as a fat activist. And with the with the reach in the medium of, of a podcast, I know we mentioned before we started recording that there may be some people who have never heard those two words put together in that order. <laughs> I'm hoping kind of before we dive into that side of what you do, if you could just kind of give a little rundown for people who maybe aren't familiar, at least from your experience, what it means to be a fat activist and ways that people can be allies. Absolutely. So there's a lot of information I think I could cover as a fat person and a part of the fat activist movement, the fact that we exist in our fat bodies and try to do that as unapologetically as possible is a radical thing because fat phobia is one of the most, like fat people are one of the most hated people like in Mm -hmm. the whole world. And then of course, like in all marginalized groups, you have the people who are the least marginalized and the ones that are the most. So that would be small fats, which are people who have accessibility to clothing and are able to sit in chairs with arms at restaurants. Don't ever have to worry about either of those things. And then medium fats may be able to do both. And then you have large fats and then Infina fats or um, super fats. Uh, and those people are our most marginalized because they constantly fear that they're not going to be able to sit in public spaces. That includes airplanes and restaurants mm-hmm. and anywhere else that a straight sized person, which is to say a non fat person, like can exist. And then you have even more marginalization for fat people of color and especially fat black people who especially fat black women and then any of the other like marginalized identities they may encompass such as queerness or transness you know so we as fat activists need to be advocating for the most marginalized and be trying to like fight these systems that don't consider these spaces so i prefer the word fat obesity and overweight are offensive because mm-hmm. they suggest Well, obesity is a medical term that was meant to create, like, perpetuate fat phobia. And then overweight suggests that you're not the correct weight. Right. That there isn't a weight that there can be, like, some sort of standardized weight to Mm -hmm. which weights can be, like, given value in relation to. Exactly. And, like, the BMI test is not correct at all. It suggests that there's a general way of looking at bodies and that everyone's body is the same when that's not true. And there are lots of reasons why people are fat, and it doesn't mean they're lazy. It also doesn't mean that it's your business. And telling Mm -hmm. someone something like, have you lost weight? You're looking really good today is a fat phobic statement. And Mm -hmm. saying things like, I feel fat is offensive because you're suggesting 
that feeling well first of all feeling fat is not real you can't feel <laughs> fat <laughs> you can that's only not be an emotion fat. yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly so and, and the other part of that is that you're feeling bad about feeling fat because being fat would be awful <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in all media, like we until recently, I would say, because there are lots of people who are standing up and writing books like Lindy West and Roxanne Gay and mm-hmm. Jess Baker. And then there's, of course, the excellent podcast. She's all fat. All of those mm-hmm. things. And then Shrill, which is Lindy West's books adapted into a television show on Hulu. Mm-hmm. All of those things are creating positive media representation but prior to that anything you watch the fat person is always the joke they're the least educated the most lazy they're the ones who are treated the worst Um, their entire existence is just for the bit like they Mm -hmm. only exist for the bit and they don't exist to like be normal people or just exist in a space yeah and never centered and always treated like the ugly one the best friend the other yes always othered and I remember thinking about this because we were talking a little bit about movies before and where I live we've got great friends who've got two kids and so I'm consuming child media for the first time since I've been a child again because you you go over there for dinner and the the kids watch tv after dinner and it is incredible how particularly with Disney but you do see it across all medium how Mm -hmm. the fat character shows up consistently as you say as the best friend as this asexual Mm -hmm. foil that's almost like always like a a character of kind of 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 pity in a way yes um and and even if they're i think at this point this new media that's being created knows enough not to directly like have a like wah wah fat moment like for for lack of it or to you know directly use the character's fatness for uh comedic ends but it's always it's always like, oh, and, and you know, there there could never be the romantic interest. They could never be the lead. It's just yeah. this, we needed another character for the thin characters to have experiences in relation to. And mm-hmm. it's consistent. And this is things that are being produced today, 2019. Mm-hmm. Like everything the kids watch. You know? Yes. Well, so I would consider myself like the thing I watch the most would definitely be cartoons. Hmm. <laughs> I love cartoons. It's like a, a big, I like their wonder and the way they create these fantasy spaces that still exist in our real world. But like the fantasy creates like this new sense of wonder. And anyway, the most revolutionary contemporary cartoon today is Steven universe, which is written by Rebecca sugar. Who's a queer woman And the title character is a fat boy who Mm. shows emotions and empathy. And, like, she's taken these tropes that you would assign to women and given them to men. And Steven interacts with these characters who are um, non-binary and queer female-presenting characters who have queer relationships. And Mm -hmm. it's incredible. And it truly evokes, like, I mean, it just, like, tells you like being gay is okay because Rebecca Sugar talked about how when she was a kid she considers herself bisexual and never didn't understand like 
why she liked women, but no one on TV liked women. Mm -hmm. And so she wanted to create representation for that. But also she's not a fat woman, but she has fat characters and she has characters who identify as women who are also like masculine, which Mm -hmm. I think is so important. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best one. (laughs) (laughs) You should yeah. check it out if you want. If yeah. you like cartoons. <laughs> I was gonna say I don't I don't know if we if we have it on Australian TV, but I will definitely uh suggest it for sure to <laughs> to our neighbors. Thank you for again kind of like doing a bit of that that labor that's just like, all right, Steph, let's have you <laughs> sum up an entire movement in forty five <laughs> seconds on tape. But it's it is such a huge and important contemporary issue and I highly highly recommend um, reading all of the authors that you've recommended and listening to the She's All Fat podcast and do a deep dive on it because it is essential and again one of these things that if you aren't exposed to it and you expose yourself to it it will have that effect of that you can't unring that bell you will start seeing the world completely differently and realize how incredibly pervasive and accepted this side of of our culture is. And the other thing it will do is it'll give you a better life because now you can stop being worried about if you're not fat, being fat, Mm -hmm. or if you are fat and you're worried Mm -hmm. about being fat, then accepting that, you know, it's just an incredible resource. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I think it's such a part of the water that we swim in mm-hmm. that it's it's radical for people, particularly women and or people mm-hmm. who have been socialized as women, but really for anyone to let go. Like the very idea that exactly. you could that you could let go of worrying about how much you weigh or what you're eating or moralizing the food that you eat uh or or being comfortable being attracted to a fat person like realizing mm -hmm. that it's okay for you to love (laughs) and have it like even a sexual interest in a fat person because a lot of times people like won't either won't allow themselves or like will secretly date fat people or like sleep with fat people and then never talk to them again because they don't want their friends or their family to know which is so incredibly sad like that you're allowing this conditioned thing to like control your life and then of course like the reason of like all things that are bad is because of capitalism (laughs) (laughs) they're just trying to trick you into diet cultures and Mm -hmm. buying like these fads and things that are super bad for you, like any of the diets that anyone's doing is contributing to like eating disorders and it's no good. It's no good. And and I think that a huge pillar of this like fat activism and recognizing fat phobia is accepting, of course, that diets do not work. And in a way, I guess, like now that I'm saying it, maybe that's a little fucked because it's like it's like it's like saying, well, just because you can't do anything about it, that makes it okay. Which obviously I don't want it to sound that way (laughs) because I think it's also that's that's not quite what it is. But it's this cycle that's completely feeding capitalism that if you just 
join that gym that is two hundred dollars a month, and if you yep. just buy that app that can count your calories or that meal plan or the fucking like zero calorie like carb free noodles or something yep. like that, or you know, yeah. then you can be thin and then you can be happy and then you'll have everything you've ever wanted. And so in the way you know, talking about like like feeding the capitalist beast, it's it's the perfect fuel for that because. It is something that is unachievable, but we do not question how badly we want it. And so you can continue to, okay, well, Atkins didn't work for me, so Whole30 will work for me, and Whole30 didn't work for me, so Mm -hmm. um, Jenny Craig will work for me. And it's billions and billions of dollars going into the system and the effect that it has on our bodies is physically negative and and the effect that it has on our minds i would say like it's probably uh-huh. even worse and and in the end our bodies want to be a certain weight and it will fight uh-huh. tooth and nail to get us back to it to where it yes. is determined is health for us and the biggest thing too is like for and i know all of this sounds radical but like and it is it is radical and there's nothing wrong with that because it is fighting the norms but my point is you can't look at a person's body regardless of if they're fat or skinny and know like what they are going through or what their lifestyles are and again it's none of your business but mm-hmm. like there's a movement i mean there's a book uh called health at every size so the idea that being fat is unhealthy is bullshit and <laughs> Health at Every Size or Haze, which is the acronym, mm-hmm. is by Dr. Linda Bacon, and it's a weight-inclusive approach that they're trying to teach doctors and nurses and all of the medical field because doctors have inherent fat phobia where they believe, like, or they ignore a fat person who's explaining their ailments or their struggles and are just like, if you just lost weight, then it would go away, which mm-hmm. has led to lots and lots of misdiagnosis or death and extreme cases because doctors don't listen to fat people because they think they can just prescribe weight loss as the like cure-all. Absolutely. So all of that being said, you know, you, you are a printmaker um, and an activist on, on several fronts. Why printmaking particularly in relation to activism? So I think printmaking is the most marginalized of Mm -hmm. all processes. So therefore Uh, She's perfect for activism and has roots, of course, in activism, standing up to governments like throughout her entire history. So Mm -hmm. I think she's perfect. And then, (laughs) of course, because of the multiple, you're able to like pass more information out to the universe and the world. And then because we live in a digital age, we're also not limited to what the multiple was. So we can use it in like more vast ways that push printmaking into being more than just this tiny box into this like grand, incredible, intersectional like medium that can live in any type of making. Yeah, and I think that there's also this element to the community as well and how the print shop in whatever form that it takes, it becomes a great meeting place where people are showing up to do work but we're exchanging ideas and I think because of the nature of printmaking and as you as you call it as a marginalized medium I think it naturally attracts people with marginalized identities because if you grow up 
feeling like you're something other than the norm and whether that's because gender fluidity or or body size or sexual orientation it's you know you you know that like you have it in your bones I think from a young age and you kind of naturally you're like I don't want to be captain of the football team I want to see what they're doing over here what's to the left this is what they're telling me I need to chase but I don't think that's for me I think that pre- people who who have that natural inclination, uh-huh. myself included, they find their way to printmaking if they yes. if they want to exist in artistic spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, and I think a lot of people, like I'm not particularly like I feel alienated from my family who are like white people who are very conservative and definitely mm-hmm. strong misogyny strong fat phobia like blatantly um although they wouldn't call it either of those things of course um right, but very yeah. very 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 like low income and conservative white people and i don't particularly enjoy like spending time with them or feel very close to them but for me printmaking is my found family they're mm. so kind and generous and willing to listen and have really good conversations and willing to challenge their own perspectives and printmakers are so generous with their time and their knowledge and their Mm -hmm. energy and I just feel so incredibly like lucky and fortunate to to have stumbled upon this yeah I mean and that also helps that Ryan O'Malley cultivated at TAMU CC an incredible community Um, That was huge and made me feel welcomed and loved. And then Mm -hmm. when I got, went to Frogman's print workshop that continued and then SGCI and then into grad school at West Virginia university, like it's just continued to feel like a warm and loving home. And I think that's important, especially for like these marginalized groups of people who need a place that is safe and will listen and is ready to like, change the world yeah that is such a great point that is such a great point this that it's it's not just you know I want something other than the norm because I am something other than the norm Mm -hmm. it's also once you arrive you get the message we're glad you're here and that's can be and I think is a really profound message for people who maybe haven't heard that too many times in their life before and willing to say like I'm outside of the norm and then you're also outside of the norm, but in a, in a way that's more than I am and wanting to like lift those people up and give them mm-hmm. access to spaces and they're being put in the front, you know, as people who deserve to have things they would otherwise not be able to have because of their intersecting even more marginalized identities. And I think that that nuance that we're starting to come to understand about marginalized identities is so important and such a great part of the dialogue where I think at first it was sort of, you know, people were kind of grouped together and it was like, okay, you're gay. You're in that camp. And then that was it. But now really, I mean, because of the internet and because of digital communities as well as the physical communities that, that, that we can build you can understand that being a straight passing Mm -hmm. thin cis white person who's queer is a very different experience than someone who is a fat gender fluid person of color who is queer. 
Right. And the way that you see yourself, but also the way that you are received is going to be give you a different life and a different set of experiences. Yeah. And Miranda, you're saying something important that I want to talk about a little more too, which is that everyone has privilege, regardless of their many intersecting identities. So like, I am a white person who presents themselves as a woman, so a white woman who is in a heterosexual presenting relationship, but that doesn't erase my queerness. But those things are privileges. Like those things mean that I will navigate life easier than a person who like is not white and is not a woman, but like society sees them as a woman and <laughs> and is in a queer relationship. You know, like there are things that I have that make it where I navigate life easier. So therefore I should be uh, the person to stand up and say, look at this person, like their artwork is very good. Cause otherwise it gets sleeped on because no one is mm-hmm. considering like how incredible this person is because they're not, they only look for people in their own spaces, such as white people, you know, mm-hmm. white straight people. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that as we, yeah, see now I'm feeling like, I guess, I don't know, romantic or something about it, but it's, it's like, because, you know, we're, we're recording this at the end of, of 2019, you know, mm-hmm. it's, so it won't be out until 2020, but mm-hmm. I, I would think that as artists and as, as activists and as people who are just generally trying to navigate life, not being a dick, that that might be one of the themes that we take forward into the next decade is understanding the nuances and the complexities of marginalization and the way our identities intersect at the same time as create different levels of power that we can use to support one another. Yeah, exactly. And I think often people are not willing to say like, like if someone replies and says, I'm not a racist or I'm not fatphobic, (laughs) there's no way that's true because we grew up in a society that is inherently racist and is inherently fat phobic and is, you know, inherently Eurocentric to say you're not those things is silly because it's embedded in you, you know? And so instead of trying to deny your truth, like recognizing when those things are just like pinging you to think something and being like, Oh, I don't, I can't believe I just thought that that's because of my internalized misogyny, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's not bad. It's just unlearning behavior. And so I think instead of trying to deny those things, like recognize those things and try to like shift them into being better. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a really good point as well. I think that the dialogue as of a few years ago was, look, you're either a racist or you're not. Right. So like, don't think things are in binaries. Nothing is a binary. Uh, Binaries are made up. Life is too complex. That's what we're taking forward into 2020. No more binaries. <laughs> more binaries 2020. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to I'm going to call it December 31st, 2019. I'm I'm canceling binaries and <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'd love to ask you, is there anything coming up in the future? You mentioned your exhibition in Colorado, but is there anything else that you're looking forward to in in the coming months besides the final dismantling of of binaries? (laughs) Well, 
Uh, yes, actually, I have a pretty busy winter. I feel really fortunate to have a lot of good things happening and so grateful. I will be, uh, I've been invited to Pentaculum, which is a residency at Aramont School of Craft. They invite people to be a part of this residency, and it's a week long where 2D artists work together in a shared space and just get to make the whole week. And mm. I'm very excited about that. And then, of course, mm -hmm. installing the show in Denver. And then I'll be archiving for Frogman's print workshop. So, yeah, I'm very excited. And I'm getting to teach advanced printmaking at Emporia State University next semester. So I'm going to get a bunch of the students love and print even more than they already love print or maybe they don't and then they will <laughs> uh -huh. and um if they don't shun them just yeah <laughs> don't even look at them they don't exist <laughs> <laughs> shun them they're non-believers yeah excellent well where can people find you and follow your work and all those great things that that you mentioned that'll be coming up so I am most active on my Instagram, which is at Bavarian Baby, which is, uh, I feel like it's a joke I have to share. Uh, if you don't do litho, you may not know, but litho stones are made of Bavarian limestone, so I am Bavarian Baby. Aw, I love it. I <laughs> uh, made that when I was an undergrad because I love lithography. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, my website is my name, which is stephanieolanese.com. And you can email me at stephanie.alanese.art at gmail.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you again so very much. And um, I'm looking forward to, to sharing our chat. Thank you, Miranda. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Tony Curran. Dr. Tony Curran is a lecturer in the School of Art and Design at Australian National University. He works collaboratively with printmakers throughout Australia to investigate the ways art, technology, and human relations intersect. You do not want to miss this one, print friends. It will be the first ever in-person recording for Pine Copper Lime, and my first ever interview with an artist who makes non-figurative prints. And before you go, please do at least take a peek at the screen print postcards on offer as thank yous for donations of $10 or more to help Australian wildlife. Link in the show notes. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you in two weeks.